found in Genesis um, 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of God. Amen. Is this working? Okay. Um, I'm Mark Gregory. I'm an intern here at Christ Central. Like Howard said, I'm the first of kind of the B-team preachers coming up to give him a breath of fresh air. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so, they're setting the bar pretty low with me. So, if you're new here, please come back next week. Um, so, what comes to mind when you hear somebody say, forgive and forget? Well, it depends on who says it, doesn't it? Uh, If it's coming from a person who has been wronged, it can be a quick way to say, I forgive you. Uh, Let's forget about it and just put this whole thing behind us. Most of the time, though, when somebody says that, they're the ones who have sinned against you. What they actually mean is, what? Forget about it. Don't hold us over my head any longer. I'm tired of being in your debt. As we go through our passage today, I hope we see that the act of forgiveness is not just forgetting about something you did or something that somebody did to you. True forgiveness, both the giving and receiving of it, requires a true and biblical knowledge of who God is. Now, before we get too far, I want to give you a recap of Joseph's life. Uh, He was one of the youngest of 12 brothers, and he was the favorite son of Jacob. Uh, If you heard of the coat of many colors, that's what Jacob gave to his favorite son, Joseph. And Joseph would have these dreams from God where he would see all of his brothers kind of bowing down to him. And so you can imagine his brothers didn't like him very much. Like, hey, hey, guys, I can just imagine them saying, I had this dream where y'all are all going to bow down to me someday. You want to go play? <laughs> no, Joseph, nobody wants to play with you. So one day he was out there trying to go see his brothers, and they took him, they ripped off his coat, and they beat him up, threw him in a pit, and they sold him into slavery, and they faked his death so that their father, Jacob, would think that a wild animal had killed him. Um, so Joseph gets sold to this high-ranking Egyptian of- official, And he prospers, and he's trusted with running the household. Uh, And as the text says, the Lord was with him. And so the Egyptian officials, his wife, tries to seduce him. Uh, Joseph says no, and he runs away. And the wife gets insulted, said that he tried to get fresh with her, and then he gets thrown in prison. Um, But again, Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. So he's soon put in charge of the prison, and he eventually gets out of prison by interpreting some of Pharaoh's dreams. And by the time we get to our passage today, Joseph is second in command to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. 
you know, by this time, Joseph has already revealed himself to his brothers. They know he's alive. And when we come in, as we read, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, has just died. And his, fathers have, his brothers have come to throw themselves upon his mercy. In other words, Joseph has been sinned against his entire life. But God has not only kept him alive, but he's enabled him to prosper to the point of being second in command in one of the nations, or the ancient world's most powerful nations. So like Howard was saying, when you're preaching the word, so what? What does this have to do with us? As fallen men and women, we have a really hard time forgiving others or even asking for forgiveness because either we believe we are owed something or we think we owe too much to someone else. Either we believe we are owed something or we think we owe too much. Uh, And as we go through our text, I want to hone in on the idea that because God is sovereign and merciful, he will ultimately overrule human sin for his glory and our good. So let's look, look back with me to verses 15 to 17. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I'm the youngest of three brothers, which meant that growing up, it was always two against one. Most of the time, two older brothers against the little guy. Um, you know, whether it was the time my brothers kind of tied me up with my arms outstretched between two trees just before the thunderstorm came, or when we were playing uh, Indiana Jones with a garage door. And so if you remember that part in the movie where Harrison Ford has to like, you know, slide right underneath the, the doorways, the stone's closing, you know, he grabs his hat at the last minute. Our game was kind of like that. Um, one brother would get at the end of the driveway, and the other brother would have his finger on the, the button, and he would push it, and we'd just try to run and slide in it at the last second. Um, it's pretty dangerous, thinking about it now. <laughs> I, think, I imagine one of our neighbors probably invented those motion sensors for them, so you couldn't play Indiana Jones anymore. But I, I was a little chunky growing up, and so I still remember trying to run and slide under the door and not being fast enough and getting caught underneath it. <laughs> and I don't think it hurt, but I was definitely stuck. Uh, and my brothers took their time making sure I got unstuck from that door. All I have to say, the teams were never even when we were growing up. But I always knew uh, how to ensure that my brothers would kind of, their attention would be peaked and I would be treated fairly. You know, there's a surefire way to get it. Go tell dad. You know, there were few instances in which a teary-eyed, Dad said, let me play, or Dad said, be nice. They couldn't make things right, even only for a little while. You know, there's something about the command of a father that demands attention, and it seems like that's what Joseph's brothers are calling on here. I don't want to besmirch the glowing reputation of Joseph's brothers, but we don't see anywhere in Scripture where Jacob actually said these words that his brothers claim he did. You know, the brothers do everything they can to avoid actually saying, Joseph, we messed up. We're sorry. Forgive us. Uh, Look back with me again to verse 17, when the brothers claim to have a message from their father. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And then the brothers say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So why does this make Joseph weep? Was he so overcome with happiness that his murderous brothers had finally repented? 
I don't think so. You know, Joseph was living proof of what we've already seen is kind of the main thrust of this passage. Because God is sovereign and merciful, he will ultimately overrule human sin for his glory and our good. You know, time and time again, Joseph was betrayed by those closest to him. But God not only brought him out of those trials safely, but he placed him in higher positions of authority each time. Surely Joseph would have preferred to stay in Canaan with his family, but as we'll see later in this passage, Joseph's theology would not allow him to hold a grudge for all those years. And he knew that God's hand was at work throughout his entire life, in both the good and the bad times. He did not only praise God during the good times. In short, Joseph knew God. So what I want us to draw from this section of verses, the first section, is that because God is merciful, we should ask for forgiveness. And Joseph weeps not because he is so happy that his brothers are finally repenting, but because they're actually not repenting. You know, any of you who are married know that an apology to your spouse would mean absolutely nothing. It would probably make matters worse, a lot worse, if you phrase it as coming from another person. You know, I've never tried this, but I imagine saying something like, Hey, honey, our neighbor Phil said that you should uh, forgive me for how I've been neglecting you lately. Um, it's just absurd. And so when Joseph's brothers say in verse 17 that their father said, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you, how much more powerful and less cowardly would it have been if they'd actually said that themselves? You know, Joseph knew that because there was a famine in the land, that the only reason their brothers were there at all was to save their own skin. And the theology of the brothers uh, would not allow them to accept the fact that not only is God completely sovereign, but God is merciful. He is gracious and good. You know, they saw Joseph, not God, as their immediate threat. And he knew that because they had wronged him, he had every right to take out his revenge. And he was in the perfect position to pay them back. You know, Joseph's reaction shows us how important it actually is to ask for forgiveness. So some of you have sinned against someone else. Some of you are in conflict with someone else. Don't beat around the bush with that person. Don't try to apologize in an indirect way or wait until it's more convenient for you to apologize. Joseph's brother's weak apology made it clear that their hearts were not genuinely apologetic, and it broke his heart. Joseph's knowledge that God is in total control helped him forgive his brothers, and he grieved when they saw that they did not have the same knowledge. You know, that they did not have that same relationship with God. And so if the knowledge of God's mercy and sovereignty should cause us to ask for forgiveness, uh, that we can see from the next few verses that because God is merciful, we should also forgive. Look with me back at verses 18 and 19. As his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? If you're familiar with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, you might already be thinking of the similarities between the two stories. Uh, In Jesus' parable found in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story of a man who had two sons. The younger son asks his father for inheritance, and after his father gives it to him, the son takes off for a faraway land and quickly uh, squanders his possession on what Scripture calls reckless living. You can imagine what that is. Don't imagine. We're in church. Um, so a famine sweeps across the land, and the son finds himself in desperate need of just the basic necessities of life. And so he hires himself out to a man, and his glorious job is to do what? Feed the pigs. You know, I don't imagine that pigs feast on the finest of foods, but by this time, the son was so hungry and so poor 
as Scripture tells us in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You know, the son finally comes to his senses and says to himself in verses 17 and 19, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so the son makes his way back to his home, expecting to have to grovel at the feet of his father. But when his father sees him, what does he do? You know, does he start shaking his head and, just, and disappointment and have this huge litany of all the ways his son disappointed him and shamed the family? No, he runs like a little kid through a field and hugs his son and grabs him around the neck and starts kissing him and hugging him. And so the son, he starts to give his prepared speech, but before he can finish, the father calls for these fine clothes to be brought and for a, a fattened calf to be slaughtered, you know, for a feast, a welcome home party. And so you can imagine the frustration the older brother starts feeling at this point. And we're told that he spent his entire life doing everything right, following all the rules, and always obeying his father. The older son tells his father, I have never disobeyed you, and you have never celebrated my faithfulness. And the father, who would have had every right to take out vengeance, or to accept the younger son's offer to become a servant, and says, instead says this sour, if obedient brother, he says, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother is dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It, to the father, reconciliation was more important than making sure that his son learned his lesson. You know, it was more important than making sure that he knew just how badly he had hurt his father. And this parable is reminiscent of Joseph's story, not because the events and the stories necessarily match up, but because of theology behind the actions of those who are in a position to either forgive or not forgive are very similar. We see in Joseph a view of God that won't allow him to take out vengeance on his brothers. He doesn't view his brothers from the vindictive perspective that most uh, people would, most humans would, but rather he views them from the perspective that God is our ultimate judge and king. Joseph was not looking for servants. He wanted his brothers back. Now, it would be naive of us to think that if we ask for forgiveness from those whom we have wronged, we will receive, be received with open arms and smiling faces every time. You know, y'all are aware of that fact. But it doesn't mean uh, that we should just not forgive those who have wronged us. Forgiveness isn't an event, it's a process. You know, if God is our ultimate judge and is in complete control of the universe, then we can rest in the comforting knowledge that it is not up to us to decide if someone should truly be forgiven. When Joseph says in verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God, he is acknowledging the fact that ultimately he's not the one who pardons or condemns, but God is. You know, if someone has made attempts to apologize to you, forgive them. If they are trying to mend their relationship with you, don't fool yourself into thinking that God isn't using your broken or uneasy relationship for his own good purposes. You know, it's not up to us to decide if a wrong deserves to be forgiven, is it? And I say that like it's an easy thing to forgive people who have wronged us, and clearly it isn't. But with a clearer and fuller knowledge of who God is, you know, the clearer it becomes that God is at work in every situation. You know, as we keep this in mind, let's go to the final verses in our passage, where we'll see that because God is sovereign, we can rest in the knowledge that we are not going to mess up God's plans. 
Uh, verses 20 and 21 say, and this, this might be my favorite part in the whole Bible. Uh, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was camping with some friends in the mountains in Tennessee. One of my friends knew a guy who had a lot of property up there and a place we go fish and camp. Um, and this was during the winter. So as we sat around the fire, it was decided that it was just way too cold, way too windy to be out there. You know, the man in me would like to say that I wanted to stay and kind of tough it out. Um, so we just decided to pack up our things and go. The house we were staying at was only a few miles away. But the next morning, someone had the news on, and apparently a huge forest fire had been started in the place we were camping the night before. Uh, and just a large portion of the woods had been set on fire, and the fire kind of continued to go down the mountain. Uh, you know, by the grace of God, no one was hurt. Uh, and I still have a hard time not being embarrassed by the fact that we managed to set an entire mountain on fire. Yeah, but the real, the real problem is that we had no idea what we were going to say to this guy whose property we just set ablaze. You know, after some brainstorming, we finally kind of got our strength up and went to him. And he said, knocked on the door, and our terror must have just been written all over our faces. Because we're just standing there kind of dumbstruck. And he just looks at us, he goes, boys, thank you. Thank you? Thank you for burning a large portion of your property down? Uh, so apparently, well, my first thought was, this guy's crazy. We need to get out of here before he grabs a shotgun. <laughs> but apparently this guy had been wanting to burn all the dead limbs and leaves that were covering the ground on his property for years uh, in order to make the soul healthier. But the fire department wouldn't let him because they thought uh, it was so, too dangerous. Like maybe he would set the entire mountain on fire. <laughs> so while we were terrified of what he would do or say to us, and rightly so, he could not have been more pleased at the outcome because he ended up getting his way and ultimately, his land was healthier because of the fire. You know, his desires were unknown to us. And yet, in our destructive behavior, we actually brought about what he had wanted all along. Through our destruction and mistakes, the owner of the property's ultimate goal was accomplished. How much more should we view an all-powerful, almighty God as able to accomplish his will through our sin? How incredibly foolish and short-sighted are we when things don't go our way, or when people sin against us? You know, when Joseph says in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's not just saying, oh, well, God is good and the devil must have had a hold on you. So don't worry about it. Forget about it. You know, the, the contrast here is not between the devil and God. I want to make sure we heard that. The contrast is not between the devil and God, but between the sinful actions of men that God uses for his ultimate glory and good. You know, my pastor in college wrote a response concerning the argument that God is responsible for all the good things and the devil is responsible for all the bad things. And he writes, If God's will is not in control over the evil things that happen in life, as well as the good things, then who is? The devil? Then we live in a dualistic universe where good, or God, is eternally pitted against evil, or Satan, and no amount of wish projection can create certainty as to the outcome. It is horrifying to think that what someone who rejected God's sovereignty over evil must pastorally tell an individual who has just experienced loss in a tragedy. If God is not ultimately in control of the event, then who was? You know, a nameless, faceless fate that can somehow subvert the eternal plan of the Almighty God? 
Well, y'all, the, the thought is just as blasphemous as it is disheartening. So when God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, you know, the father of many children, that meant that God was not going to let his people be completely destroyed or wiped out. If Joseph's brothers had not sinned against him and sold him into slavery, then Joseph would not have been in Egypt, and he would not have been in so prominent a place in the Egyptian government. You know, if God was not second in command to Pharaoh and was not placed there by God in order to store up food for the seven-year famine, then God's people would have been wiped out, and Abraham's line would have ended with Jacob's children. God used the betrayal of Joseph at the hands of his brothers not only to put Joseph in a position of power where he could save his brothers and his family from famine, but also and ultimately, and hear this, so that the line of Israelites that would lead to the birth of Jesus would not be wiped out. Surely Jesus could have entered the world in a much easier, much more kind of shocking way than as a poor Jewish baby, but the genealogy of Jesus shows us just how secure we are in God's hands. If you're having a hard time reconciling the idea that God is able to use sin sinlessly, uh, that God is able to use sin, our sin, for good without being tainted by that sin, then I want to point us to the cross. Isaiah 53 talks about God's servant who would come and who would be wounded for our transgressions. It writes in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. One commentator writes of how Jesus is described by the prophet as a selfless and suffering servant, and he says, yet we hated him. Against him, cruel and evil men poured out wrath. He was unjustly arrested, unjustly tried, unjustly convicted. Then he was killed without mercy. Never in the entire history of the world has greater evil been done. For this was an extreme of evil practice against one who is not only innocent of crimes, but who is also actually sinless. You know, the most sinful act that could possibly be committed by humans happened when Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, was crucified. God the Son came to earth to serve and to save us, and we killed him for it. Now, if we do not have a God who works all things together for good, then the death of Jesus is the end of the story. It's lights out for us, we messed up God's plan. You know, if God is not a sovereign and merciful God, then Joseph would have taken vengeance on his brothers, Jesus would not have been raised from the dead, and we would have every right to despair of the hopeless state of men and to wallow in self-pity. You know, but instead of taking vengeance on men for denying and slaughtering his son, God uses the sin of man in order to bring about the salvation of all to come to him. And instead of taking vengeance, God uses our sin to bring about his kingdom on earth. How not human are the ways of God. How contrary to our self-righteous instincts to not forgive each other are the ways of God. Even before Jesus, Joseph knew that God uses every act for his glory and our good. Does this mean that we'll never experience trials? Clearly not. Even Jesus bowed to the will of his father and went through the utterly incomprehensible pain of taking on the weight and punishment of our human sin. Now, if you're here today and refuse to let yourself accept what the Bible says about God being in complete control over all the good and the bad things in this world, I get it. You know, watching or reading the news can be the most challenging and just saddening thing of the day. You know, the early death of a friend or family member won't let you believe that a God who would let that happen is a good God. 
If some of you have been sinned against sexually and is constantly affecting how you view God and other people, I mean, this room is just too big for that not to be the case. So the invitation to trust God, it doesn't come with a promise of safe, calm passage through this life. And we're wrong to comfort others with similar sentiments. God does not promise us a safe passage, but he does promise us a safe port. For those united in Christ, our ultimate destination is with him. And God has promised to let nothing come between those who trust in his son and him. So just as Joseph wept when his brothers threw themselves at his mercy and called called themselves servants, God is not looking for cowering servants, but redeemed sons and daughters. Sons and daughters who can live free, uh, free in the knowledge that their heavenly father has forgiven them. Free in the knowledge that we don't need to let our strained relationships ruin our relationships on earth. As believers in Christ, we have no promises of a safe, calm passage through this life. But we can rest assured that God does mean all things for good. And our destination will be a safe and more glorious one than we can possibly imagine.